Open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8, Gospel of Mark. Our, our text this morning is Mark 8, verses 27 through 33. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your written Word. May your Spirit speak to our hearts now through the reading and preaching of that Word and in our celebration of the sacrament. We ask through your Spirit that we may be given the grace to see Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. Amen. Mark 8, verses 27 through 33. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Good to see y'all. Come on up. Yes, I remember you too, Brody. Dude, that is an awesome bus. All right, find a seat. There you go. Yeah, anywhere, Brody. There you go. If you're in deep water and you're kind of struggling to swim... Who do you need? God. Yes. But who would God probably send to help you? Your parents. Parents or maybe a lifeguard, right? A lifeguard. That's their job. Uh, but do you know that sometimes people who are in danger of drowning, like the person who's actually struggling, they actually work against the lifeguard when the lifeguard comes to rescue them? The, the swimmer who is afraid that they're going under, they feel desperate. And so they'll even grab hold of the lifeguard, like grabbing the lifeguard's arms. And, and they'll hold the lifeguard so tightly that then the lifeguard can't swim. And that's dangerous, right? Because if the lifeguard is starting to go under, then suddenly there are two people in trouble. And so when lifeguards are trying to rescue someone who is really freaking out, instead of talking to the swimmer or, or trying to wrestle them face to face to get them to stop, the lifeguards do something kind of surprising, something unexpected. The lifeguard will actually push away from the swimmer and then will go under the water. The lifeguard will go under the water, underneath that scared swimmer, so that they can pop out behind them, behind the scared swimmer. 
And, and then they can grab them securely. By, by surprising them from under and then behind, the lifeguard can rescue them and pull them to the shore. Now, in the passage that we just read from Mark, when Peter and the disciples understood that Jesus is the rescuer that God sent, Jesus told them something surprising. They were right about who he was. He was going to rescue people from sin and death itself, but he was going to do it in a way that nobody expected. He himself, Jesus, was going to suffer and die. He, he told them that he was going to go down into death. That was the only way that he could deal with our sin and rescue us from the death that our sins deserve. Only by suffering himself could, could we enjoy the, the joy of life with God. Could we experience that? It, guys, you and I, we're going to feel kind of like we're drowning sometimes. We're, we're going to feel overwhelmed in this life sometimes. When bad things happen, when sad things happen, we, we can feel like we're underwater, like we're struggling for air. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know why God allows those things to happen. But while I don't know why, I do know one thing. I know that Jesus experienced all the worst things of this life, too. And he went through them so that he could bring us through them as well. And one day, he could rescue us completely. And because you and I follow a Savior who passed through death so that he could bring us to life, that's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seats. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. As Sam said, our principal text this morning is going to be Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 27 through 33. But before we get there, uh, we're actually going to turn to Mark 11. So you can turn ahead just a few chapters to the, the more familiar text for Palm Sunday. Because on Palm Sunday, we normally focus on what has come to be known as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we will get there, as I said, this morning before we get to the text that Sam read. But the reason that I had Sam read the text from Mark 8 is because the triumphal entry is easy to misunderstand. And Jesus knew it. And so when his disciples finally realized and, and finally confessed him to be the Christ, the, the, the long-promised Savior, when, when they finally realized that he was the Anointed One, the coming Son of David, who would bring to fulfillment all of God's promises, when they, when they finally realized this, he commanded them to tell no one. He, he commanded them to be Silent, not to, to teach anyone about who he was. And he, he did that because he knew that while he was the long-expected Savior, he was not the Savior that they were expecting. And he needed to teach them how his work of salvation was going to be accomplished. He needed to teach them about his impending humiliation. And I think it's a lesson that we need 
to learn. We, too, need to see afresh Jesus' humiliation. Because it is only in Jesus' humiliation that we find hope in the midst of horror. Especially the kinds of horrors that we saw this past week. The events this past week at the Covenant School in Nashville were true horrors. They were wicked, grievous, and terrible in the most profound and weighty senses of those words. Such events leave us not only bewildered and confused, but but grief-stricken and angry. Angry at the perpetrators, angry at the facilitators, angry at all who were involved in such wickedness. But, if we're honest, also angry at God. Angry at why God would allow such events to take place. When Jesus finally showed up at the home of Mary and Martha, several days after the death of their brother Lazarus, Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now there is certainly grief in that statement, but I wonder if there's not anger too. I wonder if Martha's words were not tinged with at least a a bit of accusation. After all, Jesus knew about Lazarus' illness, and he knew in time to help him. He, He knew in time to come and heal him. But when he found out that Lazarus was sick, he didn't come right away. Rather, when when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, John tells us that he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He delayed even beginning his journey to Bethany in order to give Lazarus time to die. And that's exactly what happened. By the time Jesus arrived, Lazarus was several days dead. And so when Jesus finally arrives at the home of Mary and Martha. Martha is grieving, but she is also angry. Lord, if you had been here, if you would have just come, my brother would not have died. I wonder if similar words, similar words of anger and grief have been on your lips or at least in your heart this week. Lord, if you had just been here. Lord, if you had been here, the students and the teachers and the administrators at the Covenant School in Nashville would not have died. I wonder if such words have been on your lips this week. And I wonder if those words do not carry a tinge of accusation. Lord, if you had been here. Scott Sauls, the pastor of another PCA church in Nashville, put it this way in an article that he published on Tuesday. He writes, Why would a good and loving God, who is sovereign over every square inch of the universe, who knows the number of hairs on our heads, who said, Let the little children come to me, and who promised again and again to be our shield our protector, and our defender. 
allow for the senseless loss of life for these precious little ones? And why would this same God let faithful, loving, godly educators also be gutted from their families and communities so prematurely? Why would he let the young survivors and the brave grown-ups who courageously protected them experience the trauma of being there, of hearing the gunfire, of being rushed frantically to places of safety, and then being marked by that memory for the rest of their precious and fragile lives? Why would he not foil and fail the shooter's plans before a single shot was fired? Why would the one who holds even the hearts of kings in his hands, not by his power of persuasion over the hearts of all humans, redirect the intent of the assailant's heart as well? Why would God let the heart of one of his own image bearers go to such a horrific place and then follow through with such a horrific plan? These are the questions that we're asking, are they not? These are the questions that boil up in our grief and anger. And I want you to know that it is not wrong to feel and even to express that grief and anger, even to shout it. We know this because the Psalms, which were given to us to sing, are full of such expressions. In Psalm 13, David cries out, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Now think of the familiar words of Psalm 22, which Jesus himself quoted from the cross. My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From my words of groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 88 may be the darkest of all psalms. There the psalmist writes, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Listen to the words of Psalm 44. You have rejected us, and disgraced us, and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. 
And all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. These are strong words. These are passionate words. Words of grief and hurt and confusion and even anger. And so we know that that such expressions are, are not entirely out of line, for God has given us the word to say them. But at the same time, even as we express our deep grief, even as we express our, our deep anger, there is in us a desire to, to ask why. Why would God allow it? Why would God permit such evil? But the truth is, when we ask why, we know the answer even before we ask the question. Or maybe I should say we know we're not going to know the answer even before we ask the question. For while it is right to express our grief and our anger and our confusion, it is vanity to demand an explanation. God has not and may never tell us his reasons for allowing the suffering that we've all experienced, that we all know too well. Yes, we, we know some of the good things that God can accomplish through our suffering. We know that he can build our character. We know that he can discipline us. We know that he can turn us from, from sin. We know that God can use what is evil in our lives, what brings grief and, and suffering. We know that he can use it for our good and for his glory. But knowing that God can use suffering for our good is not the same as knowing why he allowed it in the first place. And to that question, we are seldom given an answer. God seldom tells us why. Instead, he makes his comfort and his peace and his joy inexpressible available elsewhere. Not in answers to the question, why, but rather in seeing who. We do not find comfort in, in, in knowing God's reasons, but we find comfort in seeing that God has sent his own Son into our suffering, that he might bring us through it into his peace and joy. It's, it's what we see in, on Palm Sunday as Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Look again at this passage in Mark chapter 11. We're told that now... Uh, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, What are you doing? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately." And so they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some who were standing there said to them, what, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloak on it, and he sat on it. 
And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Obviously, I do not have time this morning to, to fully unpack this scene, but I, but I want you to see one thing clearly. And the thing that I want you to see clearly is that Jesus is orchestrating his ride into Jerusalem. He gives very clear instructions to his disciples about going into the town and finding the donkey and, and bringing it back to him that he might ride it into Jerusalem. Jesus is orchestrating the scene to show that he is, in fact, the long-expected Savior, that he is the one foretold by the prophets, that he is the one coming to bring fulfillment to all of the promises of God, because he is orchestrating this scene to fulfill Old Testament prophecy, specifically the prophecy of, of Zechariah. By riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, he is announcing his identity. He is announcing himself to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And the crowds knew it. That's why they were shouting, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. They knew that Jesus was coming as their Savior. They knew that he was announcing himself to be the one long promised, to be the, the comfort and consolation of Israel, to be the horn of salvation that God had, had promised to raise up for his people. And they were greeting him as such. But I suspect that they are also a little confused because that he comes riding on a donkey's colt, while it was foretold, it was still unusual. It was a, it was a strange visual. It's not the way that, that it would have been arranged by the, the PR corporations that, that wanted to make him known as king. And it reminds us that while he is the long-expected Savior, he is not the Savior the people expected. For he is coming not to humble his enemies, but to be humbled by them. He is coming not to take the life of his enemies, but to give his life for them. We know this because we've read the rest of the story. We're, we're familiar with the Gospels. But, but even if we had not heard the, the end of the story, we would have known this or we should have known this because Jesus has been telling us this for several chapters now. That's what we saw in Mark chapter 8. Turn back there with me to the text that Sam read for us this morning. Mark chapter 8, verse, beginning at verse 27. Jesus asks a, a simple question. He says, who do the people say that I am? And after hearing the, the answers of, of the disciples about all the things that are being said about him, about out and about town, about from, from Caesar down to uh, the, the simple pedestrian, Jesus turns the question and, and points it to them. Who do you say that I am? And it's at this point that Peter answers on behalf of the twelve, saying, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. The, it, is, it is Jesus' title. It's not his name. It, it, is, it is the Greek for the Messiah, for the Anointed One. Here is Jesus, the, the promised prophet, priest, and king. Here is Jesus, the, the long-promised 
Savior. And in a sense, this text is a, is a turning point in Mark's gospel. This is the climax of the, of the first half, because in the whole first half of Mark's gospel, the question has been, who is this Jesus? Who is this one who, who teaches with authority? Who is this one who casts out demons? Who is this one who heals the, the lame and the sick? Who is this one who commands even the storms and they obey him? Who is this Jesus? And now, finally, his identity is revealed. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the long-promised Savior. But no sooner has Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ than Jesus commands Peter and the rest of the disciples to tell no one about him. Again, it's, it's confusing. It, it catches us off guard. We, we expect at this point for him to send out the twelve into, uh, into the, uh, the, the surrounding regions to say, yes, you finally see it. Now go tell everyone. But it's not what he says. He says, you finally see it. Now tell no one. Why? What's going on here? Why does Jesus strictly charge them to, to keep his secret? Well, he strictly charges them to tell no one because they don't yet know what they know. They don't yet understand what they are saying when they say that he is the Christ. It's what we see clearly in the next paragraph. In verse 31, what does Jesus do? He begins to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and must be rejected and must be killed. This is not what they were expecting. This is, this is not what they were expecting from the Savior. This is, this is not what they were expecting from David's greater son, from the king who was going to reestablish God's kingdom on earth. And, and so Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. He probably thinks he's going to get points for seeing behind Jesus' uh, subtlety. You know, as if, as if Jesus was, was saying these, these crazy things and Peter's like, oh, Jesus, we know that's not right. We know that's not what saviors do. We know how, how salvation works. And so Peter begins to rebuke him for, for saying such nonsense, for, for suggesting that he is going to be rejected and, and killed. But Jesus turns to Peter and rebukes him. And the strongest possible word, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God. I come as God's promised Savior, and God's plan of salvation requires that I suffer and then I die. Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer. Why? Why is it necessary that, that Jesus suffer? Why is it necessary that the Savior die? Because if he does not suffer and die, he cannot save. This is what the scene in the, the garden on the night that Jesus was betrayed is, is all about. We're, we're familiar with, with Jesus' passionate prayers as he, as he prays to the Father, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. What is Jesus asking in that moment? Jesus is not asking to be released from his calling as the people's Savior. He came to save his people from their sins. And he, he is joyfully giving himself to that vocation. He's not asking to be set free from his calling as, as Savior. Rather, he is saying, Lord, if there is any other way for me to save these people, please let me go that way instead. And God's silence was the answer. 
There is no other way. If Jesus doesn't suffer, he cannot save. Jesus must give his life as the ransom price of our redemption. That is why he came. He he came to save, and in order to save, he must die. He must die in our place. He must die for our sins. Only his suffering and death can pay the ransom price of our redemption. Only Jesus' suffering and death is the propitiation of God's wrath. Only Jesus' suffering and death is the atonement for our sin. As Paul says in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Or as he says it in Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says it this way, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Jesus entered into the misery of our sin so that he might bring us out of that misery into the joy of God's salvation. Now obviously, what Jesus has accomplished has not yet been fully made known. In this present evil age, we still groan. In this present evil age, we still rage. We still cry out to God in anguish, How long, O Lord? And we feel that anguish more intensely at times like these. But as Saul's put it in his blog earlier this week, this is not okay. Easter is coming, but right now, everything feels like Good Friday. Easter is coming, but right now we live in the space in between. But... Because it's not okay, we know it's not the end. Because it's not okay. More than that, because things are so desperately wrong, we know this is not the end. Jesus has purchased our redemption, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with his own precious blood. Yes, we are still waiting for our salvation to be revealed. We do not yet see it. But we know it's coming. And therefore, even in the midst of this present evil age, we do not lose hope. Even when we find ourselves seemingly alone in the darkest and deepest of valleys of death, we do not lose heart. We do not lose hope. We do not lose heart. Not because we know why. We may never really understand why. But even in the midst of our confusion, we know who. We know who came and entered into our misery that he might bring us to God. We know the Son. We know the Savior who partook of flesh and blood so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And because we know him, 
because we know our suffering and humiliated Savior. That is one reason we call this good news, even in the midst of our anguish. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, our hearts cry out to you, how long? How long will you let evil persist? How long will you let the wicked do their wicked schemes? How long will you let your people suffer? Father, we long for that day when you will bring to completion all the good works that you have promised. Give us the grace we need to stand firm in your hope until that day. Give us the grace we need not to lose heart, but to walk in the footsteps of faith until that day when you make known the full glory of your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.